This is Jen Taylor Skinner. I want to tell you about a great new podcast, The Election Ride Home. Someone's going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to nervously refresh your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you've missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Jennifer Cavanaugh of the Rand Corporation about their recent report titled Truth Decay. Nice. Jennifer Cavanaugh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So the study is called Truth Decay, and I love the name, by the way. It's nonpartisan, right? It's a nonpartisan study. So what prompted this study? Well, Truth Decay is a topic that our CEO and my co-author, Michael Rich, has been interested in for over a decade. And he was initially interested in this as a threat to RAND. If RAND is a research and analysis organization intended to provide information that informs policymakers and data and analysis and facts are no longer important, then that creates a challenge to RAND. But as the problem has become more severe and as we thought about it more carefully, I think it's become clear that the bigger challenge is really the threat it poses to democracy. So this was something that we were working on before 2016 and we were thinking about its implications for our country and how RAND could participate in the debate. So how are you defining truth decay? Well, truth decay is the term that we use to refer to the diminishing role that facts and data play in our political and civil discourse. And we define it as comprising four specific trends. The first is increasing disagreement about objective facts and data. And that would include objective facts that we can verify, as well as analytical interpretations of data, such as scientific findings. The safety of vaccines is a good example. The second trend that we point to is a blurring of the line between fact and opinion, like you see on social media or cable news. The third is increasing relative volume of opinion compared to fact, and the ability of that opinion to then drown out the facts. And finally, decreasing trust in institutions, particularly those that used to be looked to as sources of factual information, such as the government and the media. So those four trends together cause what we're calling truth decay or or comprise or define what we're calling truth decay. And what you end up with is a situation where people not only are unsure what is a fact and what is not, but also where to turn to to find those facts. Right. So can you give us an example of what truth decay is? Well, I can give you an example of some of the public policy issues that are occurring that we think are areas where this trend manifests in negative ways. So as I mentioned before, the the debate about the safety of vaccines, there's an overwhelming amount of scientific evidence that suggests that vaccines are safe. And yet there's an increasing number of people who believe that they are unsafe, who are afraid to vaccinate their children as a result. 
in coverage about the vaccine issue, you see articles that present false information as well as information that blurs the line between what is a fact and what is an anecdote or a personal experience that happened to a small number of individuals. There's not a clear dividing line between what is a fact and what is opinion or commentary or complete falsehood in the coverage of this issue. And then places where people would typically turn to get an authoritative reading on whether or not vaccines are safe or not, such as the government or scientific institutions or scientists more generally, there's an increasing skepticism and distrust of these institutions widely across the American population. And so as a result, for a young parent trying to decide what is true and what is not, this presents a challenge. It presents a challenge of being able to sift through scientific evidence, to be able to distinguish between what is a fact and what is someone's opinion peddled for personal reasons or other reasons. And it presents a challenge in terms of figuring out who to ask and who to trust for the verified information on this topic. So now that we have a better understanding of what truth decay is, can you think of an example or examples of, you know, major policy debate or, you know, scientific debate that has not been affected by truth decay, you know, where the facts are presented without bias? I mean, I guess the issue is so many of our major policy debates right now have truth decay affecting them, at least around the edges. I mean, if you think about um, the immigration debate, the healthcare debate, the taxation debate, all of these major issues that we've been debating as a country over the past year have really been affected by, by these trends. There's debate over what the facts are. So instead of having a serious debate about what we should do about immigration policy, how do we balance inclusion uh, versus our need to protect American citizens? Um, instead of having those debates, we're having debates over basic facts that we could verify with data. So I think that it's hard to think of a really like a big headline issue where there isn't a debate now about the facts, where there isn't this blurring of the line between fact and opinion, where you don't see opinion-based coverage instead of fact-based coverage and where you don't see questions about which institutions to trust. Right. So in the study, you gave some examples of historical examples of where there were examples of truth decay or signs of truth decay, like yellow journalism. And I think that was in the late 19th century. How is what they were experiencing then, those historical examples of truth decay, different from what we're experiencing now? So we see a lot of similarity. You know, I'll go back to the four trends I mentioned previously. We have clear examples of cases in the past where there's been this blurring of the line between fact and opinion and kind of an massive amount of opinion overwhelming facts. Uh, you see that in yellow journalism, as you mentioned, places where exaggerated news stories were sold in order to increase profits for newspaper companies. And we saw that again in the 20s and 30s. We also see that, that fourth trend, distrust in institutions. We see that in the 20s and 30s, distrust about banks and in the government for obvious reasons during the Great Depression. And we see it again in the 60s and 70s where the decline in trust in major institutions such as the media, such as the government, are very similar to today. Uh, the big difference there is that while the trend is similar in terms of it, its decline, the absolute level of trust um, in those institutions now is significantly lower than it was it, even in the 60s and 70s. But the biggest difference between what we saw previously and what we see today is that first trend, this increasing disagreement about basic facts. There have always been disagreements of opinion. There have always been skeptics, people who have questioned authority 
Um, but what we see now is an increasing willingness to reject objective facts, to reject well-substantiated data and evidence um, in favor of opinion and personal experience. And that does seem to be new. That doesn't seem to be something that we've seen previously in the past, at least to the extent and magnitude that we see it today. Right. And there's another component that didn't exist in the past, which is probably a really important ingredient, is the proliferation of social media, right? So what role does social media play in this? Well, social media plays a a significant role. And you're right that one of the reasons that we think that we see this difference between uh, past periods and today are the changes in the information system. So we identify four drivers of truth decay. And changes in the information system, which would include the rise of social media and the internet, is probably one of the most important. Social media and the internet have drastically increased the amount of information that we have available to us as well as the speed with which we can access that information. And the democratized access to news is also something that's important to consider. More people have access to more information. And that is a good thing. But at the same time, the fact that anybody can access information, that anybody can be a source, creates a challenge for people who want to monitor the quality of that information or ensure that it's not just the amount, but also high quality information. And so understanding the dynamics and the way that that has shifted are important. Social media and the internet also provide really powerful tools to anybody who would want to spread disinformation. You can spread disinformation and falsehoods more quickly and more easily than than we ever could before. And so I think those are ways in which our research suggests that social media and the internet have played a significant role in, in this problem. And other changes in the information system are important as well, such as changes in the economics of the media market and the shrinking profit margins that more conventional media outlets face. That creates a pressure to shift towards cheaper news or cheaper ways of producing news and away from more expensive investigative journalism. And also the role that filters and algorithms play. These algorithms and artificial intelligence play an increasing role in skewing and shaping the news that we see online. And that has significant implications for the news that we consume and the way we understand news events. So is this what you mean in the the study when you talk about economic gain as being one of the drivers of, of truth decay in terms of media outlets? Yes. I mean, media companies are not only there for the public service to provide information, but also to make a profit. And as the number of media sources has increased, uh, there's increasing competition between those that remain. And that creates this bottom line pressure that shrinks profit margins. Investigative journalism is really expensive. So in an era when there's pressure to cut costs, investigative journalism appears to be one of the things that gets cut. Instead, there's a shift towards commentary-based news. It's much cheaper if you're a newspaper to hire someone to write a commentary or if you're a television station to uh, bring uh, several experts on to talk about their opinions. That's much cheaper than than providing that hard-hitting investigative journalism. But that has implications then for the quality of information that's being provided and the basis in fact of that information. You know, and we haven't really talked about the 24-hour news cycle, right? Just purely the news, you know, outside of, outside of you know, social media and outside of the, the internet. And I remember growing up and the Meet the Press was on and it was on on Sunday morning and it was only on once a week. <laughs> and you had to wait another week for that cycle to come around and get your next injection of political news. So I'm just curious, like what's changed now that we're getting the news on a 24-hour cycle? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, we have access to more information, just the the sheer volume. At the same time, though, as we've gone from, you know, having this political news once or twice a week or two hours a day, now we have 24 hours a day. And 
the amount of facts that are then uh, available and reported on hasn't increased by the same amount. So we haven't seen, say, a 12-fold increase in the number of facts as we've gone from 2 to 24 hours of news. And so a lot of that time gets filled with, again, analysis and commentary and rehashing the same old issues from a different perspective. And and that drives this trend away from you know, fact-based reporting and towards reporting that's more heavily based on opinion and commentary. And the need to get people to watch your show or to read your paper creates a pressure not unlike what we saw with yellow journalism. That is to be more exceptional, to be more shocking, to capture people's attention and hold it. Right. So you talk about these news outlets kind of blurring the lines between fact and opinion, right? And you use the New York Times as an example. Recently, a lot of people are getting up in arms about the New York Times opinion pages, which now I understand are probably you know, economically driven. Can you talk a bit about, about this trend? So our focus when we talked about opinion, it's newspapers should have opinion pages. That's fine. But the opinion should stay on the opinion page, I guess, is the, the takeaway from our research. And what's concerning to us is when opinion bleeds into what appears to be fact-based reporting. Columns that mix opinion and analysis and facts together are misleading and difficult for readers to consume and understand because they don't they may not have the skills to determine what is a fact and what is not in terms of the opinion pages themselves, our analysis didn't really dig deeply into how the opinion pages themselves are contributing to this. Although certainly the amount of political commentary, both on television and in newspapers, and the extent to which this often gets caught up in partisan and the polarized political dialogue, that's another one of the drivers that we talk about, which is this polarization. Right. So can you talk a bit about polarization in, in relation to, to politics and how that fits into this overall picture? Yeah. So we focus on the role that polarization plays in creating an environment that really is ripe for truth decay. And when we talk about polarization, we're not just talking about political polarization, but also social and economic polarization, as well as demographic polarization. It's increasingly common in the United States for individuals to live with, go to school with, do social activities, attend religious services with people who are very similar to them in terms of their beliefs and their background, their education, their economic status, their values. And so this creates a very fragmented society in which we live in a sort of bubble, if you will. And we aren't exposed to then uh, views outside of ours to a lot of diversity. And, and that can have negative effects both on our understanding of issues, our ability to understand other people's perspectives, our ability to talk across lines. And there is a sort of tribalism in these kind of polarized bubbles. And from the perspective of truth decay, we focus on this for the effect that it has in allowing these alternative and competing narratives to really thrive because there is both an environment that allows it and almost a um, almost a demand for it in order to keep your group separate from the other. So how does something... Like, let's say you gave an example in the study about the data on violent crime, right? And that's become politicized and, and polarized. But that doesn't need to be politicized or polarized. It's just a fact, right? Either violent crime is falling or it's it's rising, right? So how does something like that fall into this chain of truth decay? Well, so I think it has a lot to do with how these events are covered. Um, you know, we see very clearly in the data that violent crime in the United States is on a, a long-term downward trend. And yet starting in about 2003, the number of people who believed that it was rising, that crime was actually rising, began to increase. And so the question is why? Why do we see that? You know, part of it could be just the, the dynamics of the media industry. 
We know that newscasters, newspapers, they like to tell dramatic stories, and crime often provides that drama. It attracts eyes. It attracts attention. To the extent that you know the, the two or three violent crimes that happened are covered intensely, that can skew people's interpretation of how common these things are. Um, the same thing is true of things like terrorist attacks and plane crashes. Because they get so much coverage when they occur, people drastically overestimate the frequency with which they happen. Um, and the same thing could be true in the crime space. And, you know, it does seem like a lot of issues, including the crime debate, in today's polarized climate, because of the things I talked about before, issues become polarized very quickly. They become politicized very quickly. And and that has a lot to do, I think, with the fragmentation of the social fabric in the United States right now. Yeah. So are other countries experiencing something similar to this, to truth decay? I think this is occurring in many other countries. It's definitely a global phenomenon. We focus in the report on the domestic side. But I think understanding the extent to which it is a global phenomenon is very important. We definitely see evidence of it in Europe. There's, If you want to talk about issues that have affected it in Europe, several of the recent elections have been affected by disinformation. The Brexit campaign affected by the same sorts of trends. You see this downward trend in trust in institutions worldwide. It's not just in the United States. You also see it in Europe. And so I think that they're grappling with the same sorts of issues, certainly in Europe as well as elsewhere, where they're trying to deal with the changes that have come with social media, with the ability to spread disinformation so quickly. Um, and they're struggling with many of the same social and demographic challenges. And they're kind of leading to the same sort of outcome, this truth decay. So can you talk a bit about Brexit? Like how is Brexit an example of truth decay and what happened there? Well, Brexit is another example where facts were increasingly sidelined by disinformation and narratives told by many different parties competing with both political, economic, and, and personal objectives in terms of trying to sway the outcome. And that influenced people's beliefs. You know, we know that cognitive bias plays a big role in this issue. And so the way that we process information, the way that humans process information means that once we develop a belief, it's really difficult to change our minds. And we tend to look out and seek out information that confirms what we previously believe. And so to the extent that these narratives that were sold or peddled surrounding Brexit and whether or not it was a good idea and the different factors driving it, this fed into pre-existing beliefs and this much in the same way that we see in issues in the United States. And these, these narratives and the opinions pushed aside a lot of the important facts that perhaps should have informed the decision about whether or not this was a good long-term decision. Right. You know, it just seems like a vicious cycle with cognitive bias because it sounds like a lot of these stories are driven by the biases of the news outlet, right? And it kind of further feeds the consumer and then they look to the news media to kind of further confirm their biases. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, as we have access to so much more information now, um, this becomes even an even bigger problem because we have so many different outlets where we can go to find information that confirms what we already believe. And almost no matter what your opinion is, you can find someone who agrees with you online. And, you know, that is that can be dangerous because it allows us to believe that our attitudes are more widely held than they are. Uh, 
so back to these opinion pages and commentary that you find in the New York Times or even on you know MSNBC or CNN, is there no room for this? I mean, without opinion and intellectual debate, it just seems like the news would be really boring. Oh, no, there's absolutely room for it. It should happen, right? We need that kind of debate. That's important. But it should happen alongside facts. It shouldn't replace facts. So when policymakers or individuals make their decisions about issues, when they come to form beliefs and attitudes, lots of things should inform those beliefs and attitudes or those decisions in the cases of policymakers. Some of it will be personal experience. Some of it may be commentary analysis that they've read or done themselves. But a piece of it has to be facts. So I think the perspective that we take in the report is that our emphasis on facts and data here doesn't mean that opinion isn't important. It just means that facts and data should be the foundation of the discussion. And then on top of that, we should debate our opinions and our values and our priorities. So that's sort of how we see the different opinion versus facts kind of fitting together. Both are absolutely essential. But what we see increasingly in some spheres is opinion pushing out facts. And so that's what we're pointing to when we talk about truth decay. Talk a bit about the concept of fake news, which I which I'm hesitant to actually utter that phrase. You hear it so often. But, you know, I felt like, you know, at the beginning of last year or even before then, when the rise of the phrase fake news was happening, I felt like I understood what fake news meant. And, you know, and now I know that there's real fake news and then there's fake fake news. I mean, like Russia generated content, for instance, is probably real fake news. How as a consumer can I begin to parse out What's an example of truth decay? And I don't want to conflate the two, fake news and truth decay, but it's hard to kind of parse these things out. Exactly. And I mean, one of the reasons behind this report, one of the motivations behind this report was that there was no common set of terms or clear understanding of what these terms meant that we could use to talk about the problem, to research it, and to move forward. So that's one of the things that we wanted to do with this report. So, you know, fake news in its simplest terms just means news that is false. We in the report define it as news that is false, but intentionally so, so intentionally false information. And in that sense, it's very similar to disinformation. So disinformation can be distinguished from misinformation, in that misinformation is incorrect, but may be spread by accident. And disinformation is intentionally spread incorrectly. Now, fake news, I don't think actually is a very useful term anymore, because it includes both things that are intentionally wrong. It includes things that are wrong by accident. And it includes increasingly things that I don't agree with to some people who will use fake news to refer to anything that doesn't fit with their worldview. And so the reason that I don't think fake news is useful is because each of these different types of information suggests its own problems and its own responses if we want to improve the situation. And so I think it's much more useful to talk about what are the specific types of information? Is it misinformation? Is it disinformation? Is it just information that I don't agree with? And then think about who is the audience for that information and what's the intent? Why are they sending this information? Is it economic? Is it political? Do they want to change their mind? Do they want to change my mind? And so I think that using more specific language to talk about the information that's being disseminated can help us to better talk about this problem and have a better understanding of what's going on. So do you think that part of the problem is that Americans have forgotten the art of critical thinking? I do think that the lack of critical thinking is an issue here. And we point to that in our third driver, which is uh, competing demands on the education system. If you look at schools today, they face an increasing number of demands and a shrinking fiscal constraint. As the information system has become so complex and we have access to so much information, it's been difficult for schools to keep up in terms of providing students with the skills they need to navigate that information. 
in a, in a world driven by social media and the internet, critical thinking becomes even more important. And students need the ability to understand and evaluate what is a good source, what is a bad source, how should I evaluate a source, how can I form an opinion by combining information from multiple sources. If you look at how students spend their school day, they're not getting those kinds of skills increasingly. We see declines in time spent on just the types of subjects that students need to become good critical thinkers, things like civics and social studies, statistics education, education and scientific method. Those are things that students need to receive. And this isn't necessarily a criticism of schools. Technology changes really fast and institutions change slowly. And the gap that emerges in the interim is, I think, what we're pointing to. And of course, this affects adults as well. Adults are confront the same information environment, and they didn't usually get training in social media when they were in school, certainly not for older generations when social media wasn't even invented. And I think that the challenge of being a critical thinker when you're confronted with so much information, some of it being true and some of it being false, is a really specialized skill. And I'm not sure that it may not be that our critical thinking skills have gotten worse. It's just that the challenge and the demand for those skills have gotten so much greater, and we don't always have the ability, um, at least immediately in the near term, to critically evaluate all that information just given the sheer volume. I'm a big believer in traditional academia, and I think one of the hardest things for me is the breakdown in trust of academic institutions, right? And it's not just because there's a breakdown in trust, but because I think I've seen some evidence of universities and colleges starting to respond to that breakdown in trust. I think there are a number of ways in which education system contributes to this problem, you know, which are outlined in the report. In the report, we really focus on K-12 schools, but certainly this is an issue, you know, still at college because students still need to, you know, be taught these critical thinking skills. I think it's difficult to lump all universities into one bucket because they're all, you know, they're all pretty different in terms of how they approach these issues. I do think that one of the most important things, at least for me, when I was in college, was being exposed to lots of different ideas. And I think I got that opportunity and learning how to evaluate those both on the basis of facts and on the basis of my own personal values and ethics. And I think it's important that even as we try to increase diversity and ensure that we have balance, as well as promote a democratic values, that we allow students that space to explore different ideas, even ideas that they find troubling, and to confront and critically analyze those ideas just as they would analyze any other ideas. I don't think that the political affiliation of a professor necessarily determines how they teach. I haven't seen any data that professors who are liberal or conservative then use their platform as a professor to spread that political agenda or to punish students for not agreeing with them. I haven't seen any evidence that that's occurring. So I do think that regardless of, you know, I say the majority of professors at universities are in it for the teaching. They're in it to spread their knowledge and to be mentors to students. Right. And I believe that as well. I haven't seen any examples of professors doing that deliberately or, or not deliberately. It's just that that has been a recent charge, you know, again, in the news, that when something is expressed that is outside of the opinion of, of someone else, they label it as, as fake news. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I would agree that, you know, to the extent that that happens, it, a university should be a place where we are able to have, like, meaningful discussions, even if we disagree. Right. And I think that it's important that they stay that way. And so I guess I would hope that they are able, uh, certainly when I was in school, I felt like, you know, we have that space. I would hope that they are able to stay outside of kind of this political infighting that we see sometimes take over in Washington. So what are the consequences of, of truth decay? So we identify four consequences. When people don't have a shared set of facts, we see an erosion of civil discourse. And what we mean by that is 
uh, the ability to have meaningful policy-based or fact-based discussions about important issues. And that doesn't have to mean that they are necessarily polite discussions or that we don't disagree or get into fights. It means that we're able to have that space to have that disagreement and have that discussion. Increasingly, we don't see those discussions happening. You tend to either avoid those subjects completely or once the disagreement gets heated, both parties walk away from the table. And that's concerning from the perspective of our democracy because those types of debates and discussions are really important and valuable in a democratic society. And we see this erosion in civil discourse bleed into the political arena as well. In the political arena, the effects are even more damaging in many cases. When policymakers don't have a shared set of facts, they struggle to have meaningful policy debates about key issues. Instead of having a debate in the case of immigration, for example, about what the policy should be. Instead, we're still debating what the facts are. And so that not only undermines the policymaking process, but it can lead to political paralysis and stalemate, which prevents key decisions from being made. And that has economic consequences, such as government shutdowns. The third consequence we point to is declining civic engagement. Increasingly, people faced with truth decay appear to check out of the political system almost. And that's not just in terms of voting, their voting behavior, but also their perceived sense of political efficacy, the sense to which they think politics matters or they have an ability to influence it. But participation is the foundation of a democratic society. So if we lose that, it's unclear how our democracy can remain healthy and vibrant going forward. And then finally, uncertainty. And this uncertainty manifests in many ways. It affects the decisions of policymakers who no longer have objective benchmarks and make decisions. It affects individuals who struggle to make decisions about finances or healthcare or other issues. They don't know what the facts are. And it affects businesses as well who can't make decisions about investments. So again, we have economic consequences. And so when we talk about consequences, I think it's important to recognize that there are several levels. The first is the way it affects our democratic institutions. And the second is the way that it has more pernicious effects on our individual livelihoods um, and mental health and ability to interact with others. All right. So you have several players here. You have politicians who are proliferating it for their own gains, right? And you have news media outlets and you have social media companies, and then you have consumers, right? The consumers on the other end. What can each of those players do to help break down the system of truth decay? So I think there are a number of things that people can do. I mean, if we're going to talk about media, I think there are a number of ways that the media industry can take action themselves to improve the quality of information available. And that goes from tech platforms who could do a better job of increasing transparency um, in terms of what the information they provide to the public about their filters and algorithms, as well as continuing to work in areas like fact-checking and identification of bots. Politics is a, is a tough area because in other areas of society like sports and business, there is a hard accountability constraint to ignoring facts. If you ignore facts in baseball, your team may lose because you're not taking advantage of the information you have. In politics, increasingly, it seems that this accountability constraint is missing. People are willing to not hold politicians accountable for telling untruths. So, so I think that in terms of what, what needs to be improved in the area of government, uh, it's really up to to each one of us to hold our politicians accountable. We have to recognize that facts matter and we have to provide them the incentives that they need to use that fact-based analysis and to use that information that they have. I would hope that policymakers would also see themselves that when facts are ignored, the public suffers. To the extent that politicians are supposed to be our representatives in the government, 
it would seem that considering facts and trying to make the policymaking process as efficient and effective as possible so that it can benefit the most number of people, that should be one of their goals. You know, we also identify the ways in which research and academia plays a role. And again, I think there, there's an importance of thinking about transparency. How can we be more transparent about where we get our data, what we're sure about and what we're not sure about? And second, communication. How can we do a better job of communicating technical research findings to the public in ways that they can understand so that they aren't so skeptical of scientific research? It's really easy to relate to a personal experience. It's a lot harder to present facts and data in a way that everyone can relate to and respond to. But I think that's on researchers and academics to be able to uh, figure out the, the communication that they need. So I think those are some of the ways that actors within this system can help to, um, to address the challenge. But if we as consumers don't really know what is factual and what isn't, right, we're kind of the victims of this truth decay, how can we push our leaders to remove themselves from the system? Well, so I think that while it's challenging to figure out what's not a fact and what is, I think that is something that we can do. And so I think that there is a role for for every individual to play here. And that is accepting responsibility for taking the time and making the effort to figure out what's a fact and what's not, and to become an informed citizen. It's not enough to just read the paper. You have to read several different accounts of the same issue. You have to look at the data yourself. If you want to be an informed participant in democracy and to hold policymakers accountable, then you need to take the steps required to become engaged in that way. It may not be possible to do that on every issue. There are, of course, time and information constraints in terms of how much bandwidth any one person has. But I think that there are many and an increasing number of resources available to, to voters and individuals who want to become informed on specific issues. And so I think learning and taking the action to become media literate is something that we can all do. And I think that it should be a priority alongside our commitment to civic participation. Those are things that are increasingly required of us as democratic citizens in a social media age. So how do we become media literate? Yes, there are an increasing number of resources available online for people who are interested. There are many online classes. Some require a fee, some are free. There are an increasing number of community colleges and other uh, local resources that are trying to provide these skills. There's also an increasing amount of attention paid to this issue with tips, uh, user's guides, or cheat sheets on how to be an effective consumer. But I think just a couple of basic questions could, asking yourself a couple of basic questions can help everyone. And that's when you read an article, when you see information, try to understand what's the source. Is it a trusted source? What's the bias of that source and the bias of the reporter if I know it? Does the story add up? How does this fit with other things I've heard? And if it doesn't fit, what other sources can I seek out to make sense of this issue? And finally, just to be willing to challenge your own biases. Everybody has biases. It's important to get yourself outside of your comfort zone, to confront and consume information that comes from sources that disagree with you. I think that that allows you to see issues in a new way and to develop more, more nuanced opinions about issues and also to be more open to that civic dialogue that I mentioned before, that ability to talk across lines. And so that's just kind of a simple set of things that you can do just you know right off the bat to start becoming more media savvy. Well, Jennifer Cavanaugh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and the, this work is really important. I hope everyone reads the study. Thanks so much. Um, the study is available on our website. We also have shortened versions and some videos for those of you who don't have time to read the full report.